Joanna Drebby, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Hi, thanks for having me this morning. Absolutely. And I have to give credit to my colleague, uh, Daniel Sabinski, who introduced us, a uh, wonderful colleague and also a former um, EL teacher in New Jersey. So thanks, Daniel, if you're listening. Um, so I'm really excited about this conversation because it's something that we really haven't talked a lot about. Um, and so let's let's get right into it. When, when we think um, about how immigration impacts students, we often focus our attention on newcomers, which is totally understandable. And it's certainly a topic worth exploring, one that we've explored quite a bit on this podcast and another content that we've put out. Um, but still, many people are surprised to hear that the majority of English learners in our schools were born in the U.S., something that we talk about at Elevation. But a lot of people are really surprised by that. So the question that I want to ask you to start is, how are the challenges that those students face, those born here in the United States, how are they different um, from those who have recently arrived? And we can kind of ground our conversation there. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting uh, question and place to start and something I myself have learned a lot about recently because I've been doing a bunch of interviews with with uh, children of immigrants who are young adults reflecting back on their experiences coming. And so many of them have come through ELL and I hadn't even realized that that was such a large proportion of their experience. And so, you know, I have talked to um, in the past as a sociologist, quite a few young people who have migrated themselves. And I think you all are the experts, but in my, in my experience, um, the those students who come are often facing adjustments to life in the US. They've often had some experience of family separation through the migration process with some family member that was important to them. So they're kind of dealing in the family with some emotional stuff going on um, related to that journey here. Mm -hmm. And then there's the adjustment. And then they also come with kind of some hopes and aspirations of being a migrant, which I think comes with the package. So the young people I've talked to who are born here, I mean, they're different on all those, all those things. They're not adjusting. This is their country. This is where they live. This is where they grew up. Um, they haven't had a migration journey that's disrupted family dynamics. The family dynamic thing's really different, actually. And I think also they may be a little bit more disillusioned uh, with things in the U.S. that, that have been uh, challenges for their families mm. rather than feeling as optimistic. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm glad we got that perspective. I mean, I think, and, and what we're getting into is kind of uh, what my next question is about, which is about that that identity. I mean, you talked about how newcomers have that feeling of both. Um, I mean, there's that anxiety and there's that trauma piece. And there's also that hope, that aspiration, right, um, of coming to the United States. And that, I think, very much defines, in many cases, what their identity is. Obviously, everybody's facing their own challenge. I'm not trying to clump every newcomer into one category. With students who are here in the United States who are English learners, that identity seems to be very different. Um, talk to us about the importance of identity in general and how a lack of a sense of identity can negatively impact these students, particularly the ones we're talking about here who were born in the United States. Yeah, I think I might frame it a little differently that it's not lacking in identity, but it's managing multiple identities Yeah, and kind of, kind of trying to figure out how those identities come and go. You know, some, uh, some young people I've talked to spend every summer 
in their parents' home country. So they have a really strong sense of connection um, to their parents' homeland and a very strong sense of identity there. And, and so there is kind of this bridging. Um, but the other thing I think um, I've noticed in, in those who I've talked to is that this identity changing over time. So, uh, you know, younger children, maybe in elementary school, may feel a little bit reluctant to share about some of those things at home. They may feel more conflicted about it. And then by high school, there's once they have more peers that have a similar background, they may connect and change. So it's kind of a moving target. And I think there's these conflicting identities and everybody's family is different. Some people spend tons of time abroad. Other people can't travel or have never traveled to their parents' homeland. So it's like this distant place that they mm -hmm. feel really strangely connected to. So there's a lot of variety there. So I would say there's a lot of identities and changing and identities over time. And there are probably strengths in a classroom classroom setting to activate, but, um, but that's always a challenge when there's so much diversity in those types of identities. Yeah, and I want to get to that, that strength uh, and how it comes into the classroom. We'll get to that a little later. Um, you know, this whole, and I appreciate you reframing it because I think lack was not the right word, this changing identities over time. And, you know, this is not a new thing. I mean, I studied Spanish in college and Latin American literature, and uh, and that was always a big uh, topic, right? The Just the, the identity, like where, who am I, where am I from? And I think that's largely an immigrant story, whether you're first generation or second generation. I saw it with my own, you know, father who is from Greece uh, and came here when he was very young and you see it everywhere. Um it's just now, I think, uh, because of the the the, the variety um, that we're seeing and what you just explained, uh, it's something that we need to kind of be thinking about. Uh, and going back to kind of our original question, many people and many teachers, you know, sort of think about English learners as people who are newcomers, so understanding or who are from who have immigrated, um, and so understanding that identity, I think, is a big part of it. I want to shift over to to family dynamics. Um, you kind of got into that a little bit really uh, important to understand for for all students and it's it's becoming more i think um kind of getting more of a spotlight now which i think is really nice the whole idea of family engagement um but for multilingual learners the challenges that family members face often manifest themselves in students academic lives which is hard to make a connection it's hard to kind of see give us a a couple examples of of how this plays out in your experience so we can kind of have an idea of how it works yeah, so I, I kind of have two perspectives on this. And this is this, you know, I do study immigration policy and family separation as sort of my area. So that first that first piece, I would I would suggest that experiences of separation within families really strongly shape um, dynamics at home that kids struggle to bring in or not bring in or try not to bring into the classroom and sometimes they're not successful on it. And I started by saying that kids who move themselves often have more experiences of separation, which is true. But I think um, children of immigrants born here, ELL learners often do experience some types of separation and particularly fears of separation. Um, we saw this really amped up over the past, I would say six years. I think it's relaxed a little bit, but um, but during the Trump, um, Trump administration and, and pre pre-Trump administration with a lot of the rhetoric that was going on during campaigning, I think amplified young mm -hmm. people's concerns and worries about their 
um, about possible separations in a way. And I, I, you know, lived through this like we all did. We hear the rhetoric. We're sort of like, well, but um, but so many of the young people I interviewed talked about that as being such a defining moment where that actually ties to their identity, where suddenly they were like, oh, oh, goodness, that that could be me. That could be my family. So I think this this idea of fears and, and these family dynamics at home, possible separations were really are really activated, um, particularly in the past few years. Um, the second family dynamic that comes to play with like almost everybody I interview um, is the work that they do in their families. Now all kids do work in their families. I make my kids do different things, clean, the, clean out the dishwasher, do whatever. But, but I think that, uh, that children in immigrant households uh, do more work in their families, have more family responsibilities because of that identity of being someone who's from the US and um, ELL learners more than any other population, right? Because they speak their parents' language well enough to need to be in ELL classrooms. So they're at home, they're likely translating for their parents. They're likely yep. on the phone calling PSENG or the, the electric company. They're engaging and doing a lot of work in their homes um, and it's stressful. And they may be babysitting under siblings. There are other types of things. I, every single young person I've talked to has talked about having that sense of responsibility. And the way they describe it is they grew up too quickly. Yeah. They, they perceive themselves as being more adults than their peers who don't live in, in immigrant households. That's, I, I really appreciate you breaking it down into those two buckets. And if, if I may, I'm going to take a minute just to kind of make some observations. The, the first thing that you talked about reminded me of um, this, this, this anxiety of really not know of just the uncertainty based on a lot of the rhetoric that you talked about. And I, I'm drawing a connection to my own kind of experience here, which is very different than what we're talking about in my own children of COVID and the pandemic happening and that uncertainty and seeing and wondering why, you know, my nine-year-old was off, right? And all of a sudden very anxious. And you, you, you know, it, it kind of happened quickly, right? The, the pandemic happened and, and everybody went remote. And then over time, it kind of became the new normal. And so you wonder why people sort of are acting a certain way, even though you know, when you start to really think about it, that of course, of course, this is just like a little bit of trauma here. And there's, we have to, we have to deal with it, but it takes a while to understand it. And that's the connection I'm kind of drawing here with the anxiety that these students are, it's not like right in your face, right? You have to kind of dig deep a little bit to find out where it's from. I think that's a fabulous observation. If I can jump in, I had a, a really interesting conversation with a friend yesterday who was saying she's in a, she has a child who's had some special needs and says, now I feel like everybody understands what we've been living our whole <laughs> yeah. life because they had to jump into it, all that anxiety. But I think that's a perfect parallel, right? So uh, kids growing up and families, there is this underlying sense of anxiety that perhaps we can all now better understand because we've had to live it too, that insecurity, that unknowing. And, you know, we all feel it in funny ways. Sometimes it's fine. And then other days it's like, ooh. And I think, uh, I think that's what a lot of children have been living um, in the past, you know, uh, 10, 15 years, that that generation of young people, because pre-2000, this was not 
as clearly an immigrant experience, which I think is also important to remember. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's, it's really an interesting time, hopefully to, to, to instill some empathy in people who maybe have a hard time understanding this. And I think the example you gave with your friend is a great one. Um, and then, you know, the second thing that you talked about was, was the work. And I loved it, how you said at the end, just growing up too quickly that you've heard that in so many interviews and that makes complete sense. Um, it's a very, very different experience. And again, it's not something that if I'm a teacher, I'm seeing every day or I'm understanding where it comes from, which is again, like kind of like this whole idea of digging in deeper. And we'll talk a little later about maybe some things that teachers might be able to do to kind of tease this stuff out and understand it uh, a little, a little further, but I want to dive a little bit deeper into um, your research and your work around how immigration enforcement policies impact not only children in school, but also families and communities. I think that's a really important topic to address. What impacts have you found that uh, affect students' ability to learn and to be comfortable with peers? You mentioned a few of them just now, but I'd love to dive a little bit more deeply into that whole idea of, of immigration enforcement policies. Yeah, sure. So in this project I'm doing, I kind of had started there with thinking about like trauma. That's how I, I you know, I set up this design because I wanted to see, um, we've heard about workplace raids, kids having a lot of trouble in school following some kind of incident in their community. So I've been interviewing young people who had actually a parent who was targeted. And what I mean by targeted, a parent was deported, detained, arrested, some kind of incident with law enforcement that, um, so that, so they had like someone in their immediate household, either parent, and then um, kind of a, a comparative group who just had someone in their extended family or someone in their community. So I'm trying to look at that level. And I think uh, one thing I've learned is definitely the young people who've had a parent targeted are, um, are bringing in a lot more trauma. There's a lot of trauma around those incidents and not always. And so some of the things that I'm, I'm thinking about and writing about is what, what makes the trauma worse and what um, exacerbates it and heightens it. Um, but one thing I learned across the board, even the young people who, who like just know about this issue in their community, there's a lot of silencing about this issue. There's a lot of, um, I'm calling it social silencing around immigration enforcement. Again, it's something that makes sense, but sort of surprised me as a researcher. <laughs> like young people don't talk about this. They may not. Um, some of the people I interviewed, this almost never happens in interviews, but they're like, you're the only person I've told this story to. And that's a rare occurrence. Usually when you interview people, they've you know told things about their lives to many people. And I think why, why is, is a, why is that? I'm sorry to interrupt, but I'm so curious. Yeah, no. Why is that? I think it's a really interesting, you know, yeah. I, I Why is it? It's a great <laughs> question. Why? I mean, first, I think there is, uh, some people have said, well, it's not my story to tell, right? Because it's so, and there are some legal, obviously, if someone in the family has a legal case, there's a lot of fears and concerns about uh, saying something that could be problematic to that person in their case. But it's really interesting to me because uh, there's been this whole movement, you know, undocumented students, dreamers, DACA students, the kind of that's kind of blown that out, coming out of the closet as undocumented. So you see a lot of uh, young people talking about that and being willing to to express that experience. But people in families to talk about enforcement, they're not doing that yet. And um, it's an interesting question as to why. Um, 
Well, that makes sense. The expl- explanation you gave, and I, I love it that you said yet too, because it gives us some hope that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's some of the idea of the work is that maybe we should be having more open conversations about how these policies really do, you know, affect a lot of people. And um, it's kind of one of the goals of, of, of the work. Um, but yeah, uh, I think young people are really reluctant to share and talk about those stories or to admit that it affects them. The other thing that's kind of interesting on the silencing piece is I think parents actually um, try to protect their children by not talking to them about it. Yep. So a lot of the young people have like bits and pieces, like they sort of understand a little bit of it, but not the full picture. Again, I always think of my own life. I grew up, my parents got divorced, right? And so as a kid experiencing that, I knew pieces of it, but I was pretty insecure about what I didn't know, sure. right? And I think it's a similar, it's a good analogy because that's, you know, they, young people, they kind of know there's some immigration issues, but their parents try to keep it quiet. They don't yep. want to worry their kids, but that attempt to protect actually creates some anxiety. Yeah. And I appreciate that analogy. I think it's important. And we had the other one with, with the pandemic earlier. I think it's really important to provide those to people who have an experience that these students are feeling. It's obviously not the same thing, but any way we can kind of just at least find a way to empathize um, is going to allow us to kind of create, hopefully, avenues towards solutions. And I want to go into that now, kind of some possible solutions to this to this issue. And it's not something that we're going to solve right away. And it's not easy. It's very challenging. And I'm going to start kind of broadly with kind of a policymaking level. Um, what, what might we do differently um, at the local level to help reduce the amount of trauma that these students are facing? Yeah, I actually have a lot of ideas on this. And I, I, I also appreciate that you said the local level, because those of us who work in immigration, you know, we've been sitting around waiting, it feels like like uh, two decades, three decades, we've been saying it'll change. And federal at the federal level, things just really haven't shifted that much, except have have become more harsh in terms of of penalizing folks who don't have status. So it's been really frustrating uh, if you work and and think about policy implications. Um, but I do think there's a lot of space at the local level uh, to do things a little bit differently and. Um, some of those have nothing to do with the classroom, so I'll start with those, and then I have a couple thoughts about what educators might do too. I'll bet they'll trick um, they trickle into the classroom though in some way or other. Yeah, they always do. Yeah. So one of the things that I've learned in, in in talking to so many young people is that one of one of the things that heightens trauma a lot is actually witnessing an event um, where a parent, you know, a, a stop with the police officer. Actually, a lot of um, um, conversations about ICE coming to people's homes early morning hours because they kind of there was like a shift from doing these big workplace raids to to going to people's homes but then their kids are at home watching their parents and so that actual act of witnessing of being present um, is really traumatizing to young people Um, and there's kind of no need for it right Um, you don't need to take a parent away in handcuffs after a traffic stop you could give them a ticket or so I think there is room at the local level to deal with these things more as an administrative somebody's out of status um, being really um, careful and cognizant of of when children are present Um, um, another thing is 
I, I don't know, this is a little bit technical with, um, with immigration law, but basically if, if somebody has an order of deportation or order of removal, you can um, petition that it's extreme hardship. So you have to prove extreme hardship and to make that case of extreme hardship, children are brought in, actually they have to write letters saying it would be terrible if my dad was taken away. I mean, I had no idea. I've interviewed, yeah, they have to write letters and say, this would ruin my life. It's really, it's actually, this is the most awful thing people have shared with me, that experience of having to like think it out and write it down. You talk and, about growing up too fast earlier. I mean, yeah. Why are they in the courtroom? They don't, they shouldn't need their tested with that. That should not have to be a part of making a case. And I think that um, the bar, the bar for hardship to prove extreme hardship is way too high. I mean, they look for kids that have medical condition, all this stuff. If you have a U.S. citizen child and, and you remove that parent, you're taking that parent away from a child unless the child moves with them, which takes their rights as U.S. citizens away. So I think that's hardship in itself. And, and that bar can be pretty, that can be really lower to prove hardship. I think that's really important. Um, and then the other thing that I found has been really hard for kids is a lot of them, the cases don't resolve quickly. And, you know, on the one hand, it's good because the family's not yet separated. If there's an immigration case, it's like drawn right. out, but that drawing it out is uh, the dread. really hard. <clears throat> yep. Oh, Impending on doom. and on and years and years and that insecurity, that underlying anxiety we were talking about with COVID or whatever, yep. that is going on for years, almost for some children, their entire childhoods. Right. Ugh. So, um, so those types of things, money to the immigration courts to kind of help resolve cases, local law enforcement, not, not taking parents into custody in front of children and, and lowering that bar is really important. Um, the other thing I, I learned in all my interviews um, is that some children actually had a, a community advocate, like somebody in the community jumped in. Um, they were like in a community that was really well networked um, and somebody jumped in and did all of this stuff for them. <laughs> like they didn't have to translate for their parents. They didn't have to go to immigration court with their parents. They, they had, there were a few people who had, they, they just weren't involved. And that's where I think that communities can come in and, you know, those strong networks um, of social support are really important because they can take children out of the equation and be there. And then, and then children don't have to do that. They don't have to do as much work or they know somebody else is taking care of it. Um, and that could be really helpful. Yeah. Thanks for laying that out. And I, I don't have too much to add to that. You did a really good job explaining everything. And I would recommend if anybody kind of missed anything, go back about three minutes or four minutes and listen again, because there's a lot there. Um, and, and, and these aren't, it seems to me that these proposed solutions aren't um, extremely complicated. I mean, we're dealing with children. Uh, a lot of what you said, it, st it struck me as this is just about being a, a, a good citizen. Um, we're not talking about people, even a parent who has who is is here illegally. We're not even talking about them. We're talking about their children. I feel like that point is made quite frequently, but we don't hear the examples that you're bringing up now. I mean, 
the, the every and again making another analogy to, to to the pandemic i mean it's the silver lining of this whole thing everybody should be able to understand what it feels like at this point or at least some part of it to be living in complete uncertainty and having no idea what the future is going to hold and many people um either experience themselves or with their own children or with their families or with someone someone really having a hard time with that and experiencing legitimate anxiety and needing help what you're talking about now and I, again like go back to the growing up too quickly thing we have so many children who are not do not get the opportunity to be children because because of these 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 battles that we're having and it's just we it's it's easier said than done but the point of what i'm trying to say i'm rambling here everything that you just pointed out those are all logical relatively simple things to do and there's just such a hang up, right? I and mean, it's so hard to solve these problems. You must be more frustrated than anybody having to deal with it on a day to day basis. Well, yeah, I have to I have to admit I, there is some level of frustration when it doesn't seem you know, that complicated. I, I had done a, an interview once and someone said, you know, you, it's so it sounds so simple. Isn't that because you talk to kids and the world's simple from children's perspectives? I'm not sure that's really true that the world's simple from kids perspectives, but there is something you know, we tend to complicate it and make it all very complex and all these intricacies, but from children's perspectives, you know, just don't take a parent away in front of, you know, there's some things, they're very simple and they are manageable and doable in the absence of federal reform, which of course would be better, but but in the absence of that, in, in, a, in an environment where the federal government is targeting people and increasing enforcement actions, which is what they've been doing for 20 years, is deciding that enforcement is more important than integration, and that's kind of the movement, we can do things at the local level to push back against that. Yeah, I don't know. History will judge, I guess, um, down the line. <laughs> um, okay, great. So I much of what we're discussing now is it, it's, I think you're doing a great job kind of raising awareness um, and not only raising awareness in kind of a, um, a general way, but giving us specific examples and your research is, is, is wonderful. And hopefully we'll have a chance to, I'd love to have a chance to speak with some of those students. We'll see if we can do that. Um, but I'm curious about, you know, from a teaching, from an education point of view, zooming in a little bit more, we just talked about the local level in schools. What are like two to three simple things that educators might be able to do to help their students and their families without overburdening themselves at a time when there are, many of them are already burnt out. So I want to like make sure that I'm completely laying that out on the table. Doing something extra right now is just simply not possible. But when working with students, I'd love to hear a couple of things that they might be able to do. Yeah, I, I was thinking about this, preparing for our conversation today um, uh, of just yeah, we're all we're all burnt out. I feel that too. And doing some kind of crazy curriculum or adding something to a course would be would be difficult. But I think that um, I think we can normalize conversations in really small ways. And I was thinking of the analogy of just practicing, like being really careful about not using gendered pronouns or being careful about how we talk in the classroom. And I think the same thing applies. Like uh, like trying to help normalize people's experiences through our language, through our, our, our simple ways of conversations, um, of, of talking about this is a normal experience of, you know, of the work that kids do in families as being something that's 
that's, you know, if you're in the classroom and just mentioning it, oh, you probably, you probably help your mom with this, or how would you talk to, these are small things that kind of acknowledge the experience so that it doesn't feel like such this source of stigma, which I, which is, I think what a lot of children of immigrants grow up They're they have all this stuff happening at home. They go to school. They want to forget about it. They want to understand, you know, be normal like their friends. And so there's some stuff that feels very stigmatized, like, oh, I didn't tell anybody I had all these responsibilities at home. And then you think in a classroom where the teacher just kind of slight nod and acknowledges, oh, that's something other people do. Oh, that's something <laughs> that might be more normal than I think. And I think those small, like, language just normalizing mentions that normalize the experience might be helpful. Yeah. And largely that's about bridging the gap between home and school, which comes with, you know, good relationships with the community and the family. Um, and I, it takes, it takes both knowledge and a little bit probably of courage to be able to kind of, however, you're going to mention those things to mention them in class, because you really have to know, right. You can't, <laughs> there, there's, it's kind of like a, a balance, right? Yeah. And you have to be careful, right? Because you don't want to like map something on that's, that's, that's not there, introduce things that aren't there. I mean, it, there, it does take some skill, I would imagine. Yeah. But we're seeing now, and I think this is a good thing, we're seeing more communication with families, more family engagement initiatives. And so hopefully that will, um, you know, allow us to, to do those, those kinds of things. Um, okay, great. So, Wrapping up here, we've taught you've talked a lot about you have you're very it's a very unique sort of position that you have because you're able to speak with a lot of these undergraduate students who are preparing to teach. Many of them will be teaching in some capacity. Most of them will be teaching multilingual learners, and many of them will be teaching students who have the same experiences that they have um, or they have had. Um, so, what do they tell you about? their own lived experience. You've talked about that a little bit, but I guess what I kind of want to focus on now is like, what, how does this affect their, their plans to, to serve their future students? I mean, how do you think, I think it's probably a great advantage that they have. Um, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I know this is, uh, this is where I feel a little bit like, um, like here, this is a typical answer of a college professor who teaches on this stuff, but I think, I think it's valid, right? Because I think we view we should view our personal experiences as strengths, as something that would help connect to to populations we'd be teaching or working with. So I encourage undergraduates to see those linkages. But I do think one needs to be careful because you know my experience isn't isn't the same as a child in my classroom. So it's a it's a delicate line, and and the best way that one can do that is by taking classes. So you know reading, doing some taking a history class, taking a, a class in anthropology, cultural anthropology about migration or a sociology class, because in that coursework, you can kind of make those, you could be like, oh, this is my experience and read about how it fits into some three themes like working mm -hmm. in family, but, but they're not all the same, right? And people do have really diverse experiences. So it's a little bit tricky, I would I would think working, you know, in the classroom, you want to connect to students with your experiences, but you don't want to assume and close off by exactly. assuming that what you've lived is what they live. And I think that happens a lot too. So it's, it's, you know, it's tricky. I think that's what teachers do really well. Um, and they're able to do that really well. 
Um, so, so in working with undergraduates, you know, that's what we try to do is talk about where, where your lived experience connects to other people's, how to, how to fill, figure out what some of those themes are and how to be careful about um, making assumptions um, and to be real gentle about that. Yeah. And of course, the more diversity uh, we have in, in teachers, the better off we're going to be, no matter who we're serving, whether it's somebody who's been here, family's been here for generations and generations, or a student who's a newcomer or a student who, like the ones we were talking about, was born here in the United States, but are dealing with their own sets of challenges. Um, the more diversity we can have, the better. We want to have teachers, obviously, who reflect the students that are in the classrooms. And we also want to have teachers who bring different perspectives. And I think it's great that, uh, that this sort of core of, of undergraduate students that you're working with, some of them have, have had these experiences and are going to be able to relate a little bit better. And hopefully to be able to tell their stories to students who like me did not have to deal with those challenges, but, but give them kind of a window into what, um, what those things look like. Yeah. Great. So uh, as we wrap up here, I, I, you know, we just scraped the surface of this. I looked at a lot of the resources that you've put out and there's just so much to talk about here. And as I said, I'm grateful for you coming on because this isn't really something that we have addressed. I don't think explicitly, I know elements of this conversation have come up in other interviews that we've done, but I'd love for you to just tell us how people can learn more about the work you're doing, because there's a lot there to look at. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad to, uh, share my email. I'm glad to, to talk to people individually. I really enjoy it, actually. Um, you know, my favorite thing is occasionally I get um, middle school students working on thesis projects that reach, I don't know how they get my name, but I've always been, so, it's so exciting to be to think like a middle school student has reached out and they want to know about my, they want to do like a little interview for their project. That's, that, that's the stuff that makes my day. But, um, you know, I have, obviously I have some publications and um, we have a website for this project that we're doing now um, that I can share. Um, I've written some things I can share. And, you know, really the, the idea is to kind of spread the word and um, share some of the stories more in depth that people can read about and connect to. So uh, I can give you my email. Is that the best way? <laughs> yeah, you know, we'll link to it because it's very rare that somebody that's listening is going to write it down. But uh, anybody that's yeah. listening now that wants those resources, We'll link to it on our blog post that, uh, that accompanies this episode, and that'll be at elevationeducation.com slash EL community. Yeah. Yeah. Reach out. I'm glad to answer because then depending on what somebody's interested in, you know, I, I've written a bit on, on family separation as well as this enforcement angle, focusing on younger kids and now these older, older children uh, reflecting back. So I can share whatever somebody thinks would be useful. Perfect. I appreciate it. And that's so great that connecting with the middle school students, what a great experience for both you and I'm sure those students as well, and the teacher of, of those classes. That's wonderful. Okay. So last question, Joanna, and this is a kind of a fun question. One that I uh, ask everybody. Um, it, I'd love to know if there's a book or a film or any other resource that's affected you, has a, had an influence on you either personally or professionally that you'd like to share. Yeah, there's totally is, you know, one of the things I've been, um, we, in, in this topic, that I study the Latinx experience is the main experience that we hear about, we see in films, we write about, and a lot of what I do, right? I've done a lot of uh, research interviewing kids in Mexican immigrant families. So that is kind of the experience and the voice we hear the most. And I, I had the opportunity to read this book called The Leavers by Lisa Ko, uh, not so long ago. It's a fiction. 
It's, uh, but it focuses on um, a, a child of an immigrant from China. And it's fascinating the layers, I, I don't want to give too much away, but the layers of family separation are multiple and complex and, uh, and really um, heart-wrenching in some ways, but also really interesting to think about how, again, this theme of what, what is similar across people's diverse experiences thematically and what is really unique. And I think it kind of opened up my mind to thinking about this topic of enforcement. And in this current project, I've not only been talking to kids in um, Latino immigrant families, but from all different backgrounds. And I think that really helped me think about broadening it um, beyond and the scope and the way we think about enforcement as affecting a lot more children than we may originally expect. And that's a great, that's a great book. I've recommended it to a few people who've been blown away. So I think it's a good one. <laughs> oh, good. So it's not, so it's not just you. Other people like it as well. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like, it could be my, my geeking out on the topic, but, um, I actually hate reading stuff that's too close to my work. Maybe all, maybe everybody has that experience, but you know, I, like, I, don't, I, don't, I don't love doing that all that much, but this one, this one worked really well. It's really, really well written. Great. Well, we'll link to that book as well, um, on the blog post that accompanies the episode. And with that, excuse me, Joanna, it has been a pleasure chatting with you. Um, we've had this in the books for a long time. I know you're busy. The semester is just starting. So I really, really appreciate you giving us um, some of your time to talk about this really important issue. No, oh, thanks for being interested. Um, <laughs> great. <laughs>